0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI.
0: And today we are thrilled to be joined by a VIP, uh, former secretary of education, Betsy DeVos. She is out with a new book with a great title. It's called Hostages No More, The Fight for Education, Freedom, and the Future of the American Child. Welcome so much, Betsy DeVos. We're grateful for you joining us today. Well, thanks so much, Naomi and Ian. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So we we wanted to start off by asking you a question. Uh, So some recent uh, AEI research actually just came out today. You know, whenever you listen to this podcast, it will still be recent, we promise you. But looking at enrollment in public schools Mm -hmm. uh, after the pandemic. And uh, what they found, uh, or some of our AEI colleagues found, was that over 85% of districts had enrollment losses the year after the pandemic started. Almost half of districts saw declines of 3%, which was a sevenfold increase from the prior year. So why, Secretary DeVos, are Americans fleeing public schools? Well, Naomi, the
2: last couple of years, families have experienced firsthand, they've had a front row seat for their children's education. And in so many cases, they've been very disappointed with what they've seen, whether it's been the extended closures, keeping kids out of school for months on end, as has happened in many urban areas, or whether it was the mandates around masks or vaccines, or whether it was seeing firsthand the curriculums that their children were being exposed to, uh, some of which they found abhorrent, whether it was, you know, woke, around wokeism and critical race theory, and or, or it was a, a matter of ro- a lack of robustness and high expectations academically. There's any number of reasons families have been very unhappy and many have taken it upon themselves to find solutions and do something different, whether it's uh, like a homeschool consortium or a learning pod or a micro school. Uh, but many of them have also taken them to, taken their children to schools that exist elsewhere for which they're paying tuition or uh, getting into charter schools if they happen to find one that isn't over, over-enrolled to begin with. Mm.
1: And what should the public school system be doing to not have this kind of mass exit where parents are voting with their feet.
2: Well, first of all, they should be actually listening to and respecting parents and families. And uh, we've seen in in, uh, case after case after case, instead of welcoming that exchange and instead of listening and hearing them, uh, they've actually actually shut them out. And in in some cases, you know, the National School Boards Association going to the White House and then uh, getting the White House to ask the Department of Justice to actually send threatening letters and uh, the threat of the FBI going to investigate parents who are going to ask questions and speak up at school board meetings. So it's they've really overplayed their hands uh, vis-a-vis uh, protection of the system for adult interests against family and child interests. And we saw this play out, you know, firsthand in the governor's race last year in Virginia where, uh, you know, Terry McAuliffe came down on the side of not listening to families and saying they shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. And then uh, Glenn Youngkin, on the other hand, the underdog, saying, well, no, parents have a role and have a voice and we need to be listening to them. And I I think that was a a very, um, you know, very timely example of what is happening
0: in states across the country. I wonder if if you were surprised by any of this. I mean, obviously you've done an enormous amount of work kind of championing the cause of underprivileged kids and kids who are stuck in schools that were terrible. And we knew the, the interests and the voices of parents were being ignored by those schools. But this, what happened during the pandemic really seemed to be the dismissal of the concerns of you know ordinary middle-class parents who are generally supportive of their public schools, who are involved in school boards, who have been generally pleased with the outcomes and not particularly critical necessarily of their local public schools, but they were also treated uh, in this way. And I wonder if, if that surprised you and whether you think it was sort of the fact that the union was kind of now targeting kind of a different segment of the population that has raised the ire now. Well, to be honest, it did not
2: surprise me because I've seen evidence of this for many, many years, all the years I've been involved you know, families that have been able to actually choose where they live or to um, send their children to schools by choice by paying tuition, uh, they've had the opportunity to make those choices. But when when public school parents have chosen to live somewhere, probably paid higher property prices to in, in order to do that, I, I think many of them have been sort of numbed to what has really been going on. And well before the pandemic uh all of the evidence was there around a lack of expectation and a lack of ev- of excellence. And uh Ian, you you address this so well um in your writing, around the the continued averaging down um yeah. around the experience of education. And and I think that has become much more evident to many families. And that in large part is some of the reason why many of them are opting for something different today.
1: I mean, it's still the case. I mean, in 2019, according to the nation's report card, there's still only 37% of all American kids reading at grade level based on the National Assessment for Educational Progress. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to have honest conversations about such a glaring deficiency in our education system? And yet we spend so much time on critical gender theory, critical race theory, Equity, like all of these things, and and yet these numbers just persist. What yeah. holds us back from finding the answer?
2: Well, again, I think there's been a, a sort of comfort on the part of many families who thought things were going well with their children. They're getting, you know, good grades in school, but many, you know, many families have not dived in and, and looked underneath the surface to what that actually means. And I think they've, you know, we've all generally been lulled to sleep around this. But again, I think these experiences the last couple of years have really opened the door wide to the failings of a system that were there well before the pandemic and have engaged parents in ways that we had not anticipated before and if there's a silver lining to the pandemic i'd say it is this but we have to continue to build on that and continue to make the arguments that merely the argument for education freedom is not just for the sake of freedom but it's with the expectation that we're going to continue to see improvement improvement in achievement as a result of competing opportunities for kids to learn and uh, expecting better and better and better results as, as a as a result of a larger menu of options and opportunities.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like the, the title of your book sounds like a kind of rallying cry and very inspirational. But I, I wonder, I mean, you know, there was just news that some school districts are reinstituting mask mandates for the fall. Um, and there's this Same conversation we seem to be having over and over again now into the third year of the pandemic about whether it's safe for kids to be in schools. And I just I wonder, you know, whether you think uh, a lesson is ever going to be learned here and is it only going to be learned in certain states, I guess, is the question. I mean, the, the research from AEI really showed a big distinction in terms of the drops in enrollment, you know, red states versus blue states, broadly speaking. Do you think we're ever going to kind of all get toward this? Or are those of us who are stuck in New York and California just going to have to live with this (laughs) indefinitely?
2: Well, I I do think that the the politics around this have been increasingly accruing in favor of families and kids. And uh, I don't think that politicians are going to continue to be able to ignore that reality. When three out of four Americans, no matter how you cut it, favor the notion that money for a child's education should follow that child to where that child goes to school, be it their assigned school or somewhere else. Politicians uh, ignore that at their own peril. And I think I, I'm very hopeful and optimistic that the stranglehold that the teacher unions, school unions, and all of their allies have had on the, you know, the Democrat Party, basically, that that is ultimately going to have to crack as, uh, as this continues to be a growing issue. We're seeing it in, in countless primaries across the country. And while I think the most headway will initially be made in those states that have tended red, I think ultimately it will be something that cannot be ignored. And I, I think about the state of Illinois, which has had a, a relatively small education freedom program through a tax credit scholarship for a few years now. Getting that initial program was a huge lift. Maintaining it has been a big lift. But now there are people who are vested in protecting it, families that are vested in ensuring that their kids can continue. And the politics around that are continuing to change in Illinois. So I have again optimism that this is ultimately going to accrue to families benefit and kids benefit because politicians are going are, are no longer going to be able to look the other way and simply pull the lever in favor of the of the status quo and and of the the powers that be around that status quo. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean I, I like how you're using uh, Illinois, as an example of a state, like this whole idea that states can be the laboratories of innovation, you've made this very provocative recommendation, which is essentially to eliminate the federal role, or at least eliminate the federal Department of Education. So I'm curious, how would that actually play out? Why do you think that would be better for kids in the South Bronx or Chicago or Appalachia? How does How does the existence of the department hurt those kids' chances, and how would the elimination improve it?
2: Well, first of all, let me just talk about how and when the department was founded. So in 1976, Jimmy Carter was running for president. The AFT and the NEA endorsed him for president. The first time they a teacher's union endorsed a, a presidential candidate. As a payoff for that, he promised the establishment of a Department of Education. So it wow. was established in 1979. Now, its, goal, its stated goal was to close the achievement gap. And since 1979, at the federal level alone, we've spent way over a trillion dollars supposedly to close that achievement gap. Not only has it not narrowed one little bit, but when you look at it by different measures, it's actually widened in many cases.
1: Yep. Right. As well as overall performance. Again, 37% of all kids. So it's not right. even just about the gaps. It's also just about overall performance. Exactly. Is pretty bad.
2: And then you couple that with the fact that only eight or 9% of spending for education. So we spend on average $750 billion a year on K 12 education nationwide. Eight or 9% of that comes from the federal government. And yet, taxpayers send money to the Department of Education, it gets spun around in the Department of Education. And the ideological bent of whomever is actually in there then sends that money out with strings attached back to states and local districts. And so there's really no value added. And actually for two years while I was in office, we proposed for our budget to block grant all of the funds that the department had to expend uh, back to the states for them to be able to decide how to best distribute and utilize it. I think that would have been a far better way to use that money, but one could argue whether, whether it should even be spent at all, but that's a separate issue. But the reality is the Department of Education does not add value for kids' K-12 education. And in many cases, it's actually, uh, I would say, increasing the tensions and the arguments and the debates around curriculum matters. But we don't have a national curriculum, and we shouldn't have, and all of these other things, as as spun up by all of the folks who are allied with uh, in maintaining and controlling the system.
1: Mm. Got it. So, what would happen in a world in which the federal Department of Education is gone?
2: There are a couple of um, a couple of functions that go on under the Department of, of uh, Education banner or auspice that it would have to continue, but they could be done elsewhere. So uh, protection of civil rights, the Department of Justice could take care of that. And the law around students with disabilities to ensure that they have the supports that are needed. Uh, Health and human services could actually house that piece of it. But the rest of it, all of this discretionary spending really could either be returned to the states or actually eliminated. And perhaps states Could benefit, you know. I don't know if they, you know, each state would decide if they raise taxes proportionately or whatever. But like I said, only eight or nine percent of the funding comes from the federal government, but all of the strings and the regulations come from the federal government also. And so you have states doing, you know, jumping through hoops and doing different dances to win this federal money, and yet it doesn't necessarily. There's very few places you could point to it and say. That is really making a difference for kids.
0: Sort of speaking more broadly, I mean, I think that there are a lot of folks on the right who are hoping that um, kind of there can be some sort of national movement against some of the harmful things that you're talking about uh, in education, whether it's CRT or other woke things or just, um, you know, and 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 maybe even, you know, just improving standards. I mean, do you think that um, that this this kind of thinking is misguided um, and that each state is just going to have to undertake this fight uh, on its own, um, or do you think it's worth kind of having a a national, uh, at least you know, kind of electorally speaking, like a national referendum on really, do we want these things be, to be taught to our children?
2: Well, I think we're having that uh, informally now. I mean, it's happening because families have uh, again realized it's going on, and so they're raising their voices. Um, but the, you know, the states that are trying to ban certain things, I ultimately don't think that works because those who want to advance those ideas are going to find ways to rename it and move around it. The only way you ultimately expose it and ensure that only the students whose families actually want them to learn these things have to do so uh, is is in an environment of education freedom where the money does follow each child to the, the setting and the school that their family decides is the right one for them. Mm-hmm. And in a competitive environment, you're going to, first of all, have a much greater menu of choices and options. You know, we have not even begun to scratch the surface on what a K-12 learning experience could look like because we've we've known this – this same system for 175 years. And uh, I cite in the book, but I think it's really an interesting word picture that Horace Mann, who was the father of the system that we know today, uh, 175 years ago, so the title Hostages No More is a direct reference to a quote he made when he said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. Uh, Parents saw that in the last two, two years in particular, but Horace Mann, 175 years ago, died 20 years before Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. So he never even dreamt of making a phone call. He wouldn't have even known what that was. And yet we're still basically using his same approach to doing education, And you think of how far we have come from that very first phone to how we communicate today and the the creativity and the ingenuity and entrepreneurship that has continued to evolve that technology. And we don't have any of that in education because it's been very much a one size fits all uh, government run monopoly, essentially. And I just think that if we unleash the resources behind the families and the students, that we're going to see creativity there that we haven't even begun to dream of. The consumer is going to demand it and drive it. And with respect to this notion of achievement and excellence, states compete against each other all the time economically. And how would it be any different with education? Today in my home state of Michigan is losing losing people and losing businesses to all kinds of other states that have a much more attractive education environment than Michigan does. Well, there's going to be a state interest to ensuring that what we have to offer is increasingly better. Just like, you know, those who operate businesses and and you know grow and start businesses seek out the most uh, attractive and, and appealing locations for a variety of reasons
1: uh my my last question is going to be about teachers and the next the next wave of teachers like if we are able to unleash the power of parents to be able to choose they want different schools different mindsets less wokeism more focus on math and reading where do the teachers come from
2: This is a great question, and I believe that in an education freedom environment, it will be awesome for teachers, for great teachers, for excellent teachers who today might be restrained in a system that kind of frowns on anything outside of the box. So just a little aside, I had two roundtables while I was in office with teachers who had been teachers of the year or in their state or in their district and had done their year victory lap, gone back to their schools, and within a few months had quit teaching. And I wanted to know and understand why. I had an intuition. My intuition was confirmed. Basically what they told me in differing words, but essentially the same, was I was told to get back in my box. Here I had my day in the sun, and I thought I had something extra to offer, but I was told, to get back in my box and you go and back to doing what you are doing. And I felt frustrated or I felt underappreciated. And so I think about all these teachers who are on the sidelines like that. And I also think about all of these experts in different areas who could be great teachers, but for whom right now the system is like jumping through a bunch of hoops Mm -hmm. and they never want to try to do it. It's become a profession that has been deprofessionalized because of the special interests involved. And it should be the most highly honored and respected profession. Yep. I think that will change fundamentally in an education freedom
0: environment. Well, as they say, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yes, bring we, it on. We need it in New York We, we Yes. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. So we really appreciate your, your optimism about this cause because it's very easy to get discouraged uh, after having spent all the years you have in this field. Uh, we really appreciate it. So this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley.
1: And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you very much, Secretary DeVos.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And you can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again.